Take your Bibles, though, this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're continuing our series this morning on on the law of God, and we're looking at the second commandment. Uh, So we did several introductory sermons because we we just want to have the right perspective of thinking about God's law as new covenant believers. And then last week we looked at the first commandment, uh, and this morning we're going to focus on the second commandment. And so let's just read this again together. In fact, I'm going to read to verse 21 this morning uh, to give a little more context here. It says, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and, all, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunders and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This morning, as we start and consider this second commandment that uh, is given here, that you shall not uh, make any likeness, any carved image or anything uh, that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is under the water, under the earth. Uh, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the the second commandment, not to make any carved image to be used in worship. And as we begin this morning just considering that commandment and what is really meant by it, I, I just ask you to consider this. Do you care about your image? Do you care about your image? Now, I know what most of you are probably just going to initially say is like, I don't really care what people think about me, because that's sort of the mantra that has been uh, given uh, in in society, and and I think a lot of what is happening there is we're trying to kind of be tough about it. I I don't really care what people say or or think about me, 
the, the reality is I'm not sure that that's uh, really honest. I, I think, uh, and I would suggest that if we're being honest, most of us still care very deeply about what is said about us and, and the way that people think about us. Some of us perhaps remember back to high school days and we think about how much we cared then if people thought we were cool, if we were wearing the right clothes, if we were hanging out with the right friends and so on and so on. And, and most of us have recognized, most of us hopefully have moved beyond that point where, where we're so consumed about those kinds of things. And, and yet I would still say that we do care or we have not stopped caring what people think about us. I think what has happened is that most of the time we've just gotten better at hiding it or, or pretending like we don't care. Or maybe the things that we want them to think about us have shifted. Maybe we don't care if we wear cool clothes or we hang out with the cool people anymore, but there, there is still definitely a sense in which we want people to think well of us. We want to have a good image. Part of our defensiveness in this issue, I think, is, is that we, we assume that it's bad to care. We shouldn't, like we shouldn't care what other people uh, think about us. And, and I would say, I would push back on that a little bit. I, I think it's certainly true that, that we can give the opinions of others uh, sort of an undue weight or too much place. In fact, the Bible speaks about that. It speaks about uh, the fear of man. And the fear of man is, is when we're consumed with what people think about us and their opinion of what we should do. And then we allow that pressure to kind of lead us, what we call peer pressure, into doing things that we really should not do. That's the, the fear of man. And yet we see in the Bible a tension here uh, because Proverbs 22.1 tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather uh, than, than great riches. And, and so I think that proverb there would have us actually be concerned about our reputation. It, it would have us live in such a way that our character is known to people uh, around us, that they know that we have virtuous character, that, that we work hard, or that, that we're honest people. Uh, that, that we try to do the right thing, that we're fair, that we're kind. Those kinds of things are, are really not bad concerns to have. If we work and, and live in a way that exib exhibits virtuous biblical character, then it really isn't wrong to have a healthy level of concern that, that our reputation not be denigrated by falsehood. The truth is most of us really do care if we are misrepresented or if our image is being distorted by, by people who are saying things that are not true. I've had the unfortunate pleasure as a pastor. I, I think sometimes this happens more if you're in some kind of public role. Uh, I didn't seem to notice this as much before I became a pastor, but, but as a pastor, you, you start to hear rumors about yourself or rumors about the church and, and, and I, I've experienced that, and, and those things spread through the community, and I've learned to take those things to the Lord and, and not give them too much weight, but I'd be lying to you if I said that those things don't ever bother you. You hear like, oh, you, you all did this, or the, this pastor said this, and you just think, you know, that's not true. It's maybe a, a twisting of the truth. It doesn't get all the facts right. It makes us look really bad, or it makes me look bad. I, I don't think that's altogether wrong. Just imagine if you were here this morning, you walked in, and you heard me talking about you. And you heard me saying, you know, that, that family, they're just really bad with money. And uh, they, they've got all kinds of financial problems, and they just don't have it 
they don't have it together. I think you would be hurt and upset that, that I would say things about the, uh, uh, those kind of things about you, especially if, if that was twisted, if that wasn't exactly true, or, or that maybe it's just patently false. Now, just imagine then, kind of spreading out from there, uh, imagine that you find out that I hadn't just been saying that this morning, but then I had been going around in the community and I had been talking to all kinds of people about you and saying this very same thing, things that were untrue or things that were twisted so that you begin finding out everyone you talk to is, have you heard this? And, and yes, we, we've heard that, that you're bad with money, that you're in a financial crisis and all kinds of things. You, you would be probably irate at me. And, and how zealous would you be then to try to go around and correct to your friends and family, people that you work with, or people in the church, and say, that's not true. The, the image that you have of me, these thoughts that you have about me, they're, they're all based upon slander. It's not true at all. I think we care very deeply about our image, and I, I don't think we're altogether wrong. This helps us, I think, get to the essence then of this second command. Much like last week, we find out that this commandment uh, is, is not something that is limited to, to ancient cultures. It was certainly given uh, in, in that time in which actual idols would have been fashioned and carved out as part of the worship process. But this commandment speaks certainly most immediately to, to that sin, yet there is an underlying impulse within sinful humans that remains an ever-present temptation and that is the temptation to misrepresent God just think about it if you don't want to be misrepresented if you don't want your image twisted or distorted by other people how much more our holy and righteous God does he not want his image to be twisted or distorted uh, in the minds of people so let's just talk about this commandment here. And I think essentially that's the way that I look at this. Idolatry misrepresents God. That's kind of the first point this morning. Idolatry misrepresents God. We need to tackle an issue here really quickly at the very beginning of this uh, because there are some people who read the Bible and, and look at this and say that the first, what we recognize as the first and second commandment are all really just part of the first commandment. It's all one commandment. You shall have no other gods and you shall not make any carved images. That's all part of the same thing. Uh, and and they've, they've just tried to bring those two things together. And at first that can sound right because they do seem to go hand in hand but what we need to understand is yes the the first commandment does reiterate or the second commandment does reiterate the first commandment but it actually goes beyond it so it does restate it the the command is is one way of just restating that first commandment you shall have no other gods and you shall not make a carved image in the worship of such gods Right? They go hand in hand. Don't worship other gods and don't make idols in an effort to worship those gods. Don't carve. So, so they go hand in hand. You see that. But what we need to see here this morning is that the second commandment is distinct and separate and it actually extends beyond the first commandment. While the, the two commandments are very closely related, it would be wrong to suggest that they are identical. The second commandment prohibits a particular act, and that is fashioning an image for use in worship of God. That's, that's particularly what is prohibited here. So don't worship other gods, 
And here's an additional command. It's extended out. Don't make any idols. Don't don't make any physical carvings or, or, or any kind of relics that you use in the worship of God. So some have said this. The first commandment is about worshiping the right God. Don't worship other gods. The first commandment is about worshiping the right God. But the second commandment is about worshiping this right God in the right way. It's about worshiping him in the right way. What we need to understand is that in the Old Testament culture, the practice of of creating idols, carving out images to use them in worship of, of your deity was, it was just what everyone did. It was ubiquitous within this culture. Every, every different religion in the ancient Near East, they just did that. That, that was part of, uh, it's kind of like in the air. It was all over the place. And so, you know, when we look at archaeologists and we see some of the things that they uncover, it's interesting. I mean, they find idols and things that, relics that were used in worship almost as much as they find utensils that people would eat with, right? I mean, they're just all over the place. This, this practice was so ingrained in the broader culture that it, it even influenced the Lord's people. If you re- read in Genesis, have you ever noticed where Jacob is fleeing from Laban and Laban comes out and, and uh, Rebecca has some of the household gods, they say, that she has hidden and stolen from her father. Even the Lord's people at different points had fallen into holding on to these idols. And we learn that the children of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, learned the customs and the practices of the Egyptians. While they were enslaved in Egypt, they, they just began to take on what they did. Look, they go to the temple and there are these images and they bow down to it. It's very tangible. It's very physical. And so there's just an allure. When we worship the Lord, we need some image in front of us. We need something that we can touch. We need something that we can kiss. We need something that we can bring our sacrifices before and lay it before this image. And so they were drawn into that. In fact, you remember Joshua, what he says to the people after they've been delivered from Egypt and as they're going into the promised land, he says to them, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Get rid of those idols. Get get rid of all that pagan stuff that you keep carrying around with you. This practice was so ingrained within their culture that it only made sense to them. If we're going to worship the Lord, we need an idol to him. We, we need something that we can look at and something that we can see. We see that, that the problem then wasn't just that they were worshiping other gods, but that they were in, in the worship of Yahweh, they were bringing idols into the worship of the Lord. They were saying, yeah, we're worshiping the Lord, but, but here's an idol for the Lord. It's, it's a mixing of of these things and you might be saying I don't know that I've ever heard that before but but there's a couple places that we could go to that demonstrate uh, that this is indeed at least sometimes part of the problem with idolatry we see this in the rationale if you look at Deuteronomy you could turn there if you want to Deuteronomy 4 15 to 18 and and there God is reiterating this commandment and listen to what he says Deuteronomy 4 15 he says therefore watch yourselves carefully since you saw no form 
on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal. He, he goes on from there. But do you see that? What's the rationale he said here? He says, don't make an image. Well, what kind of image? And he's saying, the reason you're not to make an image is because when I came down and met with Moses on the mountain, you didn't see me. You don't know what I look like. I have not revealed myself to you in that way. So, so don't dare now come back and try to carve or fashion some kind of image and say, this is the Lord. We're, wor we're worshiping Yahweh and this is his idol. Don't do that because you did not see me. You saw no form on the day that I'm, I met with Moses on the mountain. We see as well an example of this. When we go back to that incident, and you remember the golden calf incident when Moses is still up on the mountain receiving the law of the Lord. The Lord has thundered. All the people gathered around the mountain. God has thundered with his loud voice. He has delivered these ten words, these ten commandments, and everybody just kind of freaks out. They're like, we don't, that's, that's frightening. We don't want to hear God speak to us, Moses. You just go and we'll listen to you, Moses. You be our mediator because this God is, is too awesome. He's too great. There's, there's a, the voice that sounds like a trumpet and there's thunder and lightning and earthquake. There's a threat that if they even come too close to the mountain that they will fall dead. This, this awesome God is such an imposing figure. Just, just His mere presence there, a manifestation of His presence. The people say, we don't want to hear that. And so they go and, and tell Moses, you go up and receive this law. And what do they do when Moses is up on the mountain? Well, they fashion a golden calf. They, they fashion an idol. Listen to what it says in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 5. It says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed, and Moses was up there for a long time, they start to wonder, we, we saw this lightning and thunder, Moses must be gone. What, what are we going to do now? They gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make a God who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a with a graving tool and made a golden calf and they said listen to this they said these are your gods it, it could really be this is your god O israel who brought you up out of the land of egypt when aaron saw this he built an altar before it and aaron made a proclamation and said tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. Do you see what's going on here? We're not totally clear. Are, are the people, are they worshiping some other God? Or, or are they worshiping the Lord? It's, it's not completely clear what everyone is thinking, but it is abundantly clear what Aaron is thinking. He's saying, hey, 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 let's worship the Lord but you all want some God that you can see. Let me fashion this golden calf for you. And do you hear what he said? Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. 
They were not necessarily worshiping another God. They were worshiping Yahweh with the use of this idol that Aaron had, had fashioned. One person says this, the, the Israelites were not intending to reject the Lord and go serve other gods, but they merely wanted to have Yahweh among them in a particular manner, a manner forbidden by the second commandment. I'm, I'm not sure entirely what everyone was thinking. The scripture doesn't tell us, but it is clear that Aaron here is, is attempting to, to sort of be syncretistic. You know what syncretism is? It's when we take a little bit of this religion, usually in, in terms of Christianity, we take Christianity and we take a little bit of these pagan practices and we mix them together so that, so that people see these sort of culturally relevant things that they're used to seeing in their culture and it just gets faded in together, it gets mixed in together with uh, the worship of the Lord. And syncretism has been around all the way back since, since Aaron and Moses. And that seems to be what, what, Moses, or what Aaron is doing here. Let's, let's worship this golden calf. You all have seen this, this golden calf. This is the Lord who brought you out. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Let's have a feast to Yahweh and let's worship him using this golden calf. And so we, we see this here. I think this is also, we won't go there for sake of time, but you could look to 1 Kings 12, 28 to 31. Jeroboam does the same thing. You remember the kingdom is divided and, and Jeroboam is in the northern kingdom and everyone's going to be tempted to go in the northern kingdom to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God because that's, that's where everything was supposed to happen. And Jeroboam thinks in his mind, if everybody keeps going down to Jerusalem, they're going to eventually want to reunite with the southern kingdom and, and I, they're going to kill me and, and I'm not going to be king anymore. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up high places. I, I'm going to build altars where the people can stay up here in the north and worship the Lord. Uh, again, it doesn't seem like Jeroboam was leading them to worship other gods. He was just giving them his own interpretation of how they could worship the Lord. Some of the, the older writers call this sin self-willed worship. And I, and I think that's an adequate term. It's, a, it's an appropriate term. It's saying, I can define how I worship God. I can choose. I can worship God on my own terms. That's what Aaron was doing, and that's what Jeroboam was doing as well. And in fact, we see Jeroboam literally saying the identical words, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Stay up here in the north, and you can worship him with these images and at these high places. And so we see this command. So this is how we can distinguish then this, this first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshiping God in the right way. The Westminster uh, Catechism says this. It asks, what, what is the sin that is forbidden in the second command? And it says this, the sin forbidden in the second command are the following. All devising, counseling, commanding, using and otherwise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. You see, that's the heart of this, this command, is that God gets to decide and define the terms on which he'll be, he'll be worshipped. 
We, we don't just get to say, well, I'll worship God, but I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. I'm going to do it in ways that are relevant to me. I, I'm going to sort of define how I worship God. And God should, God should just be happy that I worship him. No, the God that we see in the Bible is a God who demands our worship, and he demands our worship in a particular way. And we need to, we need to heed to that. The sin forbidden here, then, is taking it upon ourselves to cast God in an image that seems relevant or appropriate to us. We may not be prone this morning to create physical images of God, but I think we are just as prone to sometimes create mental images, ways of thinking about God that are more in line with our reasoning and our culture, cultural setting than with divine revelation. This is what we need to understand, is that God does not want to surrender his image rights over to the creative forces of sinful human beings. God, God is not all right with just saying, here's my image rights. Do with my image whatever you want to do. Make of me whatever you want to make of me. Listen, if we are concerned about our image, and we are, if we're concerned that we be the ones that get to define who we are and, and, and define what people think about us, and, and I don't think that's entirely wrong, uh, th then we should understand that God, in a much greater way, des desires that for himself. If you took it upon yourself to begin smearing someone's reputation with falsehood, they would probably sue you for defamation of character or for libel. We even, we even have things like that in our, our legal code, right? Because we recognize that's wrong. If we care that much about our image, how much do you think God cares about his image? Companies in our day and time, they hire PR firms, and sometimes they pay them millions of dollars to, to people to sort of project the very best image possible. Well, listen, God doesn't need you to be his, his PR uh, firm. You don't need to try to give God an image, a, a good image. He is content to be known and worshiped as he has revealed himself in, in the word. You don't need to go and try to twist and say, I think God is like this, or I don't think God would ever do something like that. If what you're saying there is not grounded in the scripture, then you have no right and no ability to try to put some kind of image of God out there. Why do we feel this impulse to try to create images of God? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think idolatry seeks to control God. It seeks to control God, but what we need to understand is that God is free. Sometimes we like to talk about our freedom and our liberty. You know, we have free wills. We live in a free country, and nobody needs to step on my freedoms. You ever stop and think about the fact that God is free? God is totally free. Most people understood in these times, even sometimes I think we have a a misunderstanding about what's going on with idolatry. Most people understood, even in these cultures, uh, that, that this carved image was not an actual God, this image that they made. They, they understood, I think, that this was not God. Number one, you know, everybody in, in their nation might have the same carved image. They, they were the ones who, who made them. But what it did is that it represented God in a visual way. And, and more than that, this image would be the physical place where, where humans could commune with 
their God. This was the physical sort of access point to the, to the spiritual. The, the idea is that this was a physical represent, representation that was almost like a portal to the God that it represents. This is where I meet this God. This is where I worship. This is where this God meets me and then begins to dispense his grace to, my, to me. And they did that for multiple reasons. There, there was a longing for us as physical creatures to just have some kind of physical representation. And we should recognize in this commandment that we might be past crafting idols, but, but the reality is we still have a longing very often to have something physical and, and something tangible. Calvin says that men cannot imagine that God is near them unless there is some physical presence. And we need to get beyond that because Scripture clearly tells us that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You may long to have some kind of physical representation or, or some kind of even experiential thing where, where you sort of feel something, but God can move on us and, and, and God can do miraculous things. I don't want to put limitations upon God, but, but there is a sinful impulse that, that wants some kind of physical manifestation in order to believe, and that's not right. We need to understand that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In addition, I think there's a, a desire for, uh, in addition to this desire for physicality, there, there's a desire for something that was safe and predictable. Uh, you, you go back to this image or to this picture of, of the people of Israel. They're, they're afraid that when God reveals himself and just gives this manifestation of his power and his glory, they are terrified. This God that revealed himself was not safe. He was not predictable. He was clearly in control and they clearly were not in control. And so I think there's sometimes an underlying impetus for idolatry is that it's just simply an attempt to be able to control God. One person says this, the image represents the deity. One who has the image meets the deity himself in it. The power of the deity, this is the important part here, the power of the deity is collected and channeled by means of the image. Uh, you hear, there's kind of this sense of control. If I have this image and I pray to it, I, I can kind of go to it almost like it's a vending machine and it will dispense to me blessings and, and so forth. And I can take it with me. And, and this God that revealed himself is, is clearly somebody that should be fall, fallen down and, and worshiped, a God who is in control, a, a God in uh, which we can no way uh, manipulate or, or force him to do something. There was no idea of that when God revealed himself on the mountain. But this idol can be manipulated. It can be pleased and we can kind of get out of it what we want in a sort of safe and predictable way. One person spoke of idols like they were transformers. They, they take this powerful current of, of electricity and transform it into a safe and manageable level. So idolatry attempts to make an infinite, awesome, fear-inducing, holy, all-powerful, sovereign God into a controllable, unthreatening, safe God. You see, for many of us, we don't like a God who's awesome or who is imposing or a God who is even sometimes threatening we don't like a God who is like that, who is so clearly out of our control. 
a God whom we are to fear. We have an innate desire as sinful human beings to do away with that kind of God and to make him less imposing. Listen, there is, there is no mistake in the fact that them fashioning this golden calf was directly related to God revealing him himself in such a powerful in such a threatening sort of way, an overpowering way. They saw that and we said, they said, we don't want that. We, we don't know what to do with a God who is so great and so mighty. Let's fashion a God over here that we can carry around and make it do what we want to do, right? And, and that impulse, I think, is in, in all of us. One person spoke of, of these idols as if uh, it's, it's our attempt to sort of carry God around on a leash. The essence of this sin then of idolatry is to misrepresent God by imagining him in ways that make him controllable or in ways that make him accessible to us on our terms when and where and how we want him. We can do this with things like religious relics. This may not be the t biggest temptation for us, but the use of religious relics can, can serve to kind of make God controllable. If I pray with these beads, or if I look at this cross, or if I have this picture of Jesus, or if I have Grandma's Bible with me and I read from Grandma's Bible, it's almost like a good luck charm, and I kind of get God to do what I want Him to do. And we need to avoid that. We've got to be careful about religious Relics, anything that we start to attach some kind of sentimental value to, and, and it can very easily become more than just sentimental. It, it can become superstitious. Kevin DeYoung says this, what, what, prohibits, what he prohibits in this command is infusing any kind of object with spiritual efficacy as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, can represent God, or establish communion with God. And there's a, there's a few problems with this, a, a couple of things. First of all, the reason we've got to be careful about this is because we can begin to treat some object with the kind of reverence that belongs only to God. There's nothing wrong with having sentimental value on Grandma's Bible or a cross that you like for our artistic beauty or, or even perhaps a, a picture. I'm, I'm not at the place where I would just say a picture of Jesus is completely uh, prohibited here. But, but what I am saying is that anytime you begin to recognize some sort of superstitious or some sort of extra devotion that is given to these things as if like when I pray with this or when I look at this picture, it, it, it's almost as if God is, is kind of guaranteed to respond to my prayer. Any kind of reverence that is given is problematic. Some people throughout church history have tried to distinguish between veneration of relics uh, and worship as if they're somehow different. But the reformers were clear to say, watch what they do, not what they would say. Because people would say, we're not worshiping them, we're just venerating them. Well, what's the difference at the end of the day? You're giving devotion and worship to this thing that is meant for God alone, and he doesn't want us to do that. You remember in the Old Testament, Hezekiah, 
In the time of Hezekiah, he was a reformer uh, in, in Israel's history. He was a good king. And of course, there had been all kinds of idolatry. There was all kinds of paganism had, that had come into God's people. And Hezekiah comes in. He tears down these high places. He gets rid of the idols. But one of the things that he got rid of, and you maybe have never noticed this before, was the bronze serpent that Moses made uh, when the people of Israel had been bitten as a judgment of God. And, and God told him, craft this bronze servant serpent and everyone who looks to this serpent will live they'll be healed of this this poisonous uh, bite that that has occurred to them well the people of Israel kept that around for generations and generations and they had actually begun to worship that thing they had actually begun to venerate that and to to hold it in high esteem and and even to worship it this was something that God even had given to them and said do this it was a God-given thing but yet their attitude toward it had become an attitude of worship. And Hezekiah said, not only do we need to get rid of these other idols and, and these high places where you're worshiping these other gods, but we need to get rid of this bronze serpent as well because you're giving devotion to that that belongs only to the Lord. The second problem with this way of thinking is that we're, we're imagining that God can be controlled on our terms. Again, we go back to the Old Testament and we see an illustration of this. We can take even things that God has given us, like a Bible or like, like the ordinances that we're given, and we can give them sort of undue power almost. You remember when uh, the, the children of Israel, uh, when they went out in battle against the Philistines, and the, the Philistines were defeating them. You can find this in 1 Samuel chapter 4 if you want to read it later. We won't read the whole story. But, it, but they go out and the Philistines, they go out in battle, the Philistines defeat them. And, and the people of Israel say, you know what, God has allowed us to be defeated. Why did he do that? You know what we need to do? We need to go get the Ark of the Covenant that God has given to us. The Ark that God told them to build and put in the temple and use for worship. We need to go get that Ark. And if we bring the Ark out here, God's going to be here. And if God is here in our midst, we will defeat the Philistines. And if you've read that, I'm sure you know the rest of the story. They're defeated. God was teaching the children of Israel, you need to repent of your idolatry and you need to repent of your paganism and, and, and your sin. And you need to understand, you can't manipulate me. You can't control me with some kind of artifact as if somehow I am, I, I have to be there because this ark is there. You need to understand that when God when God condescends to bless us in certain ways, like as we gather together or as we take the Lord's table, that is always of grace. He is never under compulsion because we've got a Bible or a cross or we're praying to a picture of Jesus or anything else. He's never under compulsion. God is completely free to act and to bless when and where and how he chooses. God is free. He is not bound by anything. He is not on a leash. God works and blesses and answers prayers entirely as it pleases his good pleasure and not at all because it's attached to any kind of religious relic. Finally, this morning, we see that idolatry is an attempt to make God comprehensible, but God is beyond our understanding. I mentioned earlier that we can make mental images of God. We may not be tempted this morning to go carve some kind of idol 
or, or to hold on to a cross or to look at a picture of Jesus. Uh, those things may not be sort of what we're tempted to do, but I know sort of an extension of this command or a broader application of this command, I think all of us are tempted to have a mental image of God, a conception of God that we worship that is not the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. And I think that is forbidden in this command as, as well. What, what seems to be the drive, driving God in this command is that we would be known, that he would be known as he has revealed himself while our tendency is to craft an image, his image after our own sinful thoughts. And so again, this broader application is that idolatry is any time we worship the Lord based on a fundamentally erroneous image or conception we have that we have crafted apart from his divine Revelation. Now, I'm not saying that you have to understand everything perfectly about God. If, you, if you've got any error in your thinking about God, then that's not true worship. What I am saying is that often our worship is based fundamentally on an erroneous view. In other words, we're worshiping with a conception of God that is diametrically opposed to how he has revealed himself in Scripture and often we need to understand that those images that we come up with, those conceptions of God, that they're not unintentional. They're not just things that we fall into. Sometimes we are tempted not to like the way that God has revealed himself in Scripture. Sometimes we are tempted not to like a God who is mysterious or beyond our comprehension or who contradicts our way of thinking. We like a God who is nice and neat and fits well with with the way that we kind of think about things. There's all kinds of images of God, conceptions of God in, in our thinking, or at least temptations there. We, we like a God sometimes who's without judgment. The God I serve is a God of love. Is that true? Absolutely, God is love, for sure. But, but is that the totality of who God is? The, does love exhaust all that God is? Absolutely not. God reveals also that he's a God of justice, that he is a God of righteousness. But some people come to church and they raise their hands and they praise a God who would never judge them because of their sins, who, who is totally fine even though they are, they are walking in a way that is diametrically opposed to God. And they say, I'm worshiping the Lord. No, no, no. You're worshiping a false conception of the Lord. You're worshiping an idol. We, we can have all kinds of wrong conceptions of God. A God who is all acceptance and no judgment. A, a God who it doesn't really have an unchangeable standard. The, the, the God that has revealed himself in Scripture is a lawgiver. We're, we're seeing that. He makes demands of his people. And, it, and if we worship a God who really doesn't have any set standards, any unchanging laws, we're worshiping a false conception of God. A God who is bound by man's understanding of science. I won't even say science, but by man's understanding of science. We, we've got to take God and fit him into what, what, the, what they're saying in the latest you know, journal article or, or whatever. That's a false conception of God. A God who is malleable to our latest version of justice, even though it's not true justice. A God who is always supportive of our political ideology or our preferred leaders, a God who never challenges our sensibilities. As I said before, I don't think God would do that. Well, 
Is the reason you don't think God would do that because you've been reading your Bible and you see that God says he, is ne he would never do that? Or, or is it just simply that you have some sensibilities that, that thinking about God in that way kind of goes against those sensibilities? Would it, wouldn't it be better to say, I kind of wish God wouldn't do that, but, but I'm not so sure that he would. We, we need to understand that we can have all kinds of wrong conceptions of God. And if those things are pervading our mind and keeping us from worshiping the true Lord, they are a breaking of this commandment not to have any false images. What we need to see as we conclude this morning is that God has given us a supreme image of himself. Jesus, as we said earlier in, in our introductory sermons, that we need to look at each of these uh, commands in light of, of Christ. And, and what we see happening in, in the coming of the Son of Man is, is that God took on an image. And some people have made, I think, kind of not a good statement to say that God broke the second commandment when, when Jesus came onto the earth. Well, I don't think he broke the second commandment because the commandment is that you and I don't have the prerogative to give an image to God. But God is completely free to, to give an image of himself. And that's what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. When he sent him to this earth, he gave a physical representation. In fact, the, the exact imprint of his divine nature in, in God and man. And think about all the reasons we tend to worship idols. And what we see is those reasons are, are answered in Christ. First of all, we, we want some, some clarity about God. We want to understand him more. But Jesus is the one, the scripture tells us, who perfectly reveals the Father without any distortion. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on to say in verse number 18, No one has ever seen God. Remember that? God said, Don't make an image of me, because you did not see any form when I appeared on the mountain. You didn't see me. No man has ever seen the Lord. But notice what he says here. The only, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is, this, is the one he's talking about here. The word has made him known. Jesus has perfectly revealed or imaged the Father. The second thing and sort of that we hit on, why we look to idols or why we look to relics or these kinds of things is that we somehow want to think that we can sort of manipulate God's blessing. If I pray after reading this Bible or if I hold this cross or whatever it is, if I go to a certain church or whatever, then, then God will be sure to answer my prayer. But listen, in Jesus Christ, every blessing of God has been secured for you. This, the one who is the image, the perfect image of his son. You don't need to hold a cross. You don't need to look at a, at a picture of Jesus. You're in Jesus. You are found in Him. And every blessing of God has been poured out on you. It belongs to you. It is guaranteed for you in Jesus Christ. No need for relics. No need to pray holding a cross or pray to a saint or anything else. Everything else is given to us in Christ. And thirdly, we, we long to, to worship something that, that we can see. And when we look to Christ, we see this man who received worship. We see people falling down at his feet and worshiping him. 
people kissing his feet, much in the way that sometimes pagan people would fall down to an idol and, and worship uh, that. And, and what we see is that Jesus receives that worship. This was not idolatry. This was not a breaking of this commandment because this is an image, a physical image, that is truly an image of, the, of God the Father. The command then, as we look at it this morning, would have us give our devotion and our worship to Jesus Christ. And I hope that's where our hearts are led this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've made yourself known to us. God, we pray that you would lead each one of us to, to worship Christ and to serve him as the one who's the true image of, of you. We, we pray, Lord, that each of us would, would look not to any kind of relic or, or any kind of way to manipulate you, but that we would flee to Christ so that we can have your blessing in him given to us. God, we pray that you would, that you would strip away any desire within us to, to be able to craft you into to make you fit into what's culturally acceptable in our day and time. God, we pray that we would worship you uh, as you've revealed yourself in Scripture and, and not in any way um, by, by trying to make you fit with what we think is appropriate or what we think is right. God, we are so proud in that. We pray that you would, that you would forgive us of our sin. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.